You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's open with a word of prayer before we begin. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It is so clear to us and it is so precious to us. It is in your word that we can expect to hear your voice. And we thank you for this written word before us and the clarity that it brings to our lives and its sanctifying influence and effect upon us. And we now as your people ask that you would sanctify us by your truth, that you would draw our hearts toward Christ, help us to appreciate you, our God, and your word, and teach us and instruct us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 7, today we're going to just sort of do what we do from time to time, and that is to give an overview or an introduction to John chapter 7. Whenever we study a book as long as the Gospel of John, um, it is good for us since we're going through verse by verse, sometimes phrase by phrase, or even slowing down word by word. It's good occasionally to step back and kind of get a bird's eye view of it, and we never want to consider any text in isolation from its context. So since we go so slowly sometimes through chapters, it's good to step back and, and get a, remind ourselves of where we have been and where we are going and kind of do a flyby. So that's what we're going to do with John 7 today, just a flyby. We're actually going to read and cover, it in but a very shallow sense, all of John chapter 7. And then beginning next week, we'll go back to the beginning and dive back in. But I want us to get a feel and appreciation for what is contained in chapter 7. Each chapter of John's gospel has been very unique and a blessing to me in a different way. And I hope you have found the same thing, that each chapter is unique enough, the content is unique, and John keeps the story moving quick enough that all of the theology and the elements that he brings in is is a blessing to us in its own unique way. And I have found that. And there is a lot in John 7 that I think is very engaging and interesting, not the least of which is what is revealed in verse 1 when John says that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus, the end of verse 1. And that is, in fact, that theme that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus is the storyline of all of John chapter 7. It starts out at the beginning with the Jews seeking to kill Jesus, and chapter 7 ends with the Jews seeking to kill Jesus. And all the way through this chapter, it is one attempt after another for them to lay hold of him and to seize him, to grab a hold of him, arrest him. They wanted to kill him. But you will find as we go through chapter 7 that continually Jesus is in control of all of the events of chapter 7, and he does not allow that to happen because his time had not yet come. And just as the Passover and the, the turning of water, uh, sorry, not the turning of water into wine, just as the Passover and the multiplying of bread and fish set the context and the tone and the theme of chapter 6, so that statement in verse 1 sets the context and the theme and the tone of chapter 7. The Jews were seeking to kill him. So we want to dive into chapter 7, and we are going to look at a bunch of interesting things. And then as we dive in beginning next week a little bit deeper, I think you'll see that there is a lot in this chapter that is going to be very rewarding and enriching for us. Before we start chapter 7, though, I want to give you a little bit of a background of some things that are happening around chapter 7, because you'll notice that chapter 7 begins with after these things, which is John's characteristic way of sort of moving the storyline along. He doesn't tell us how long between chapter 6 and chapter 7, but we know there's a period of time. And so then we ask the question, well, what is happening between chapter 6 and chapter 7? 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into, like we did between 5 and 6 and 3 and 4 and 1 and 2 and all of his other chapters, I'm going to try and pull from the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, some of the events that they record which fit in between chapter 6 and chapter 7, just so you can kind of get a feel for where some of these events in the life of the Lord Jesus take place. So here are the things that happen between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the Gospel of John. And by the way, we're able to do this because, and keep this in mind, none of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, none of the four Gospels give us a comprehensive treatment of everything that happened in the life of the Lord. you got to keep that in mind. Each Gospel writer writes with the intention of telling us something about Jesus through the events that they record. Not always are the events even chronological in the gospel. Sometimes they're arranged thematically. And so every gospel, none of them are comprehensive. So as we take the gospel of John, which gives us details, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not include, we're able to take those other three gospels and sort of paint a backdrop picture and plug some things in. So that's what we're going to do. Between the events of chapter 6 and chapter 7, here's what happened. Remember, Jesus is in Caesarea, sorry, not Caesarea, Capernaum. He's in Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. He's in the synagogue there as chapter 6 concludes. Now what happened after chapter 6? Here's what happened. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus had a conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes over his disciples eating with unwashed hands. That happened after chapter 6. You can record, you, you can read this in Matthew 15 and Mark chapter 7. Then Jesus withdrew for a period of time from Galilee and went into the regions of Tyre and Sidon. And there he met the Syrophoenician woman and he healed her demon-possessed daughter. Jesus then healed a deaf man, and Matthew records that he did another, a multitude of other miracles, healings. After chapter 6 is the feeding of the 4,000, recorded in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 8. It's a different event. It's not the feeding of the 5,000, recorded in chapter 6 of John's Gospel. There was a second feeding of a multitude. That's the feeding of the 4,000. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, probably to Capernaum, And there he had a confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees again when they demanded of him a sign. And you remember this account in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 8. Jesus responded to them and said, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign is going to be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And just as Jonah was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, so the Son of Man... No, sorry. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. That was the sign, his reference to his resurrection. Jesus then withdrew again from Galilee and healed the blind man at Bethsaida in Mark chapter 8. He was at Caesarea Philippi where he questioned his disciples and asked them, Who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah, some say the prophet. And Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was Peter's confession. Now, you remember back from chapter 6, the end of chapter 6, Peter had quite a confession we already looked at in verse 68 when Jesus asked him, Who do you Sorry, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, that was quite a confession, but that sort of an early confession, after all of these other events that I've recorded, Peter finally came to the conclusion, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's an even more clear and messianic and and uh, expression of Jesus' divinity and Peter's understanding of Jesus' divinity. So that happened to Caesarea Philippi. Then Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection. That's in Matthew 16, Mark 8, and Luke 9. And after that came the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus took Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain and was transfigured before them. Then Jesus returned to Caesarea Philippi. He healed a demon-possessed boy. Then he returned again to Galilee and predicted his own death and resurrection. All of that happened between chapter 6 and chapter 7. 
You can go to Matthew chapter 15, 16, and 17 and read those events. You can go to Mark 7, 8, and 9 and read about those events. And Luke chapter 9, all of them record those events that happened between chapter 6 and chapter 7. So now we pick up in Luke, sorry, John chapter 7. Get my Gospels right. Now we pick up in John chapter 7. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now walking there describes the peripatetic nature of Jesus' ministry. It's a big word, just simply means he walked around a lot. He was an itinerant preacher, teacher. He never stayed in one place very long. And even as I read to you that list of things that he did, he was going from Caesarea Philippi to Tyre and Sidon and back to Galilee, and then he leaves Galilee and goes here. He was walking around this whole time. About five months' worth of travels contained between chapter 6 and chapter 7. But John tells us they were all... They were all contained in the northern section of the nation, all up in the regions of Galilee, which was to the north. Judea was in the south. Now, what was in Judea? Well, Jerusalem was in Judea. The temple was in Judea. And guess what? The largest concentration of the Jewish leadership was in Judea, and that's where they were intent on killing him. So Jesus stayed in the northern regions of the nation of Israel, never really left Galilee and the areas around the Sea of Galilee. He stayed up there, he was walking there, and John says he didn't go to Judea because Jesus knew that they were trying to kill him in Judea, and so he avoided that, stayed out of the south, stayed in the north, and his ministry was concentrated in the northern regions of the land of Israel. The Jews were trying to, or were seeking to kill him, and as I said at the beginning, that really is the theme that's going to, we're going to trace this all the way through the Gospel of John. This theme, or all, well, yeah, for the rest of the Gospel of John, certainly through chapter 7, this theme of the Jews seeking to kill Jesus. Now, that's not the first mention of the Jews trying to kill Jesus in John's Gospel. Do you remember when the first mention of that was? Do you remember? Think back. We already saw that. Back in chapter 5, do you remember the episode in chapter 5? Jesus was in Jerusalem around likely a Passover feast. He was walking through the pool next to the pool in uh, Jerusalem called Bethesda. And there he saw the crippled man who was not able to even have anybody roll him into the water when he was when the water was stirred up so that he could be healed. That's what they believed. And you remember that? Jesus walking through there, healed the man, and then left. And what did the Jews do? They were infuriated. Why? Because he did it on the Sabbath, right? He did it on the Sabbath. That infuriated him. And then John says in chapter 5, verse 16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's where this started. And we're going to, before we get through John chapter 7, we're going to see Jesus refer back to that incident in chapter 5 as the very reason that they were still trying to kill him. So John chapter 7 takes place 18 months after the events of John chapter 5, and they are still seeking to kill him. A year and a half later, they're still seeking to kill him. All because of what he did back in John chapter 5. So the Jews were seeking to kill him. Verse 2, we have a reference to a feast. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. The feast of the Jews, the feast of booths. I would be surprised if there are more, maybe more than a couple of you here who know right off the top of your head all the details about the feast of booths. We're going to get to that actually next week because that feast, that mention of the Feast of Booths actually sort of sets the whole thematic context for John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. There are two things that Jesus does at this feast which are incredibly significant that they wouldn't make any sense if we weren't told in verse 2 that the Feast of Booths was near. By the way, John arranges almost, almost entirely his entire gospel around the mentions of the feasts. 
His mentions of the feast, if you go through and you just mark the mentions of the feast, you will see that a lot of his materials, discourses, miracles, all rotate around those mentions of feasts. This is not the first feast we've seen mentioned. He mentions the Passovers all the way through, and now we have reference to another feast. It's all—it's almost as if John describes for us an entire scene around a feast. Teachings and miracles and things that are sort of connected to that feast. And then he moves on to another feast, and he tells us the themes and the discourses and the teachings and the miracles that are sort of connected with that feast. This is the way he moves all the way through the Gospel of John. It's really kind of interesting. What is the Feast of Booths? You'll find out next week, and you'll find out why that is significant for the rest of John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. The marking of feasts by John does two things. It helps us to mark time. When John says there was a Passover and this happened, and then there was a Passover and this happened, you kind of get the sense that, okay, there's how much time between those two. A year. They didn't celebrate the Passover once a month or once a quarter. It was once a year. So John is helping us to mark time all the way through the life of the Lord Jesus around these events as he refers to the feast. It helps us kind of put things in a structure. There's a second thing that the reference to the feast does, and that is it it, it illuminates for us the whole context in which these things are said and done. There's a reason John mentions the feasts. He wants us to understand that the things that are said and the things that are done are said and done in connection to these feasts. These are significant. His time in Jerusalem is significant because the Jews are there for a feast. And so what Jesus says to them on feast occasions is significant. All right, so the Feast of Booths was near. Now we get into verse 3. You say, at this rate, it would take us a long time to get through all 53 of these verses. Verse 3, Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. No one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now there's kind of a biting bit of an accusation there. His brothers knew of his popularity. They knew of the signs that he did. They knew of what he was teaching and what he was, who he was claiming to be. And his brothers are sort of basically drawing a line in the sand there and saying, look, why don't you tell everybody about this? Why, why stay in the north? You're wandering around in the north afraid to go down south. If you really want everybody to accept you as the Messiah, you need to go right into the lion's den, right into Jerusalem. Why don't you go right into the temple and show yourself publicly? Let the, let the nation of Israel accept you as the Messiah if that's what you truly are. There's a bit of a biting, sarcastic challenge there. Why were his brothers doing this? Look at verse 5. Not even his brothers were believing in him. Now, there's another statement of unbelief, but this time it's from those who were closest to Jesus, from the very ones who grew up with him and knew him best. They did not believe in him. And by the way, they did not believe in him until what? The resurrection. It was the resurrection. Verse 6. So Jesus said to them, now this is a, this is a stinging rebuke. My time is not yet here. Your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Why does the world hate me? Because I proclaim that it's evil and that they're unrighteous, but the world can't hate you because you're no light at all, is basically what he's saying to them. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. So he stayed in the regions of the north. Verse 10 says, his brothers then went up to the feast, but he himself also went up, not publicly, as if, but as it were, as if in secret. So Jesus at first tells his brothers, look, I'm not going up to Jerusalem, not on your terms, not on your timing, not on your timetable, not to accomplish what you think I should ought to accomplish. I'm going to go up but on my own terms and on my own timetable. So initially he stays in, uh, in Galilee. Now there's something that happens between verse 9 and verse 10 that Mark and Luke fill in. Jesus remained in Galilee with his disciples there while his brothers went down to Jerusalem, or up to Jerusalem if you're talking elevation. They went down to Jerusalem in the south to the feast. And Jesus remained in Galilee with his disciples. 
During that period of time, that's when Matthew 18 comes into play and Jesus begins to teach them about the nature of the church. He begins to talk to them about church discipline and what to do when your brother sins against you. He talks to them about having childlike faith and allowing the little children to come to him. He talks to them about the nature of the kingdom of God. All of that teaching is done in in Galilee with his disciples while his brothers are on their way to the feast. And then Luke chapter 9, verse 51 says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Now that's that's Luke describing to us the departure that is contained in verse 10. Jesus, when he knew that his ascension was near, said, I'm going to Jerusalem. In other words, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because now his time had come. Now it was time for him to go to Jerusalem. So then he leaves and he departs. And by the way, it's on the way to Jerusalem on this trip, this final trip to Jerusalem. That's when they entered the Samaritan village, but the Samaritans said, no, we don't want anything to do with you. And that's when James and John said, "Uh, can we call down fire out of heaven upon them? That's when that incident happened on this final trip to Jerusalem. Now, verse 10 when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if, as, as if in secret, quietly. His brothers wanted him to go up openly. Jesus said, I'm not going up, not on your terms. But then he did go up, but he went up in secret. Verse 11, so the Jews were seeking him at the feast. Now, what do you think the Jews were trying to do with him at the feast? They wanted him, right? He had been there for the Passovers. He had been there for previous feasts, all of the required feasts. Jesus attended those. So when another required feast comes up, they are saying to themselves, This is our opportunity. We need to find him. They were waiting for him to come to them at Jerusalem. And they were seeking him at the feast. And they were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly for him for fear of the Jews. You want to know why they feared the Jews? Why nobody was speaking openly for fear of the Jews? You can see at the end of the chapter why they feared the Jews. In the meantime, they notice two things here in this paragraph. First, and these are two things to watch for all the way through chapter 7. Their intent to seize him, but their inability to do so. Watch for that. Second, the second thing you want to watch for in John chapter 7 is the response of the people to Jesus and his words. John chapter 7, this is unique. John chapter 7 gives us more of the response of the crowd and the people and the banter that was going on about Jesus than any other place in all of the four Gospels. There is a tremendous amount of detail here about what people were saying. Some people were saying, he's a good man. He heals people. Last time, two two Passovers ago, when he was in Jerusalem, he healed the blind man. He's a good man. Others are saying, no, he leads the people astray. By the way, if Jesus is, if Jesus, with the claims that Jesus made, those are your two options. He's either leading people astray, or he is who he claimed to be, because he can't be a good man and claim the things that he claimed without being an evil man if he wasn't what he claimed to be. So that's what that's what people's initial response. He's a good man. Others will say, no, he's leading people astray. But no one wanted to speak of him openly because they knew that the Jews were looking for him. So there were probably some who thought he was a good man who just wanted to keep it hush-hush as to where they were, if they knew where he was at. And nobody wanted to talk about the Jews openly with the Jews for fear of what the Jews, that is the religious leaders, would do to them. Verse 14, but when it was now... The midst of the feast, Jews went up, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Now, hold on a second. Didn't he come up to Jerusalem in secret? And now he goes not only to Jerusalem, but into the heart of the temple, into the center, the seat of Judaism, and what does he begin to do? To teach. That's anything but secret, don't you think? Don't you think that that's going to get him in trouble? If he goes into the temple and begins to teach, it's going to become immediately obvious to everybody where he's at. 
and what he is doing. If he's wanting to go up in secret, why does he go into the temple and begin to teach? I'm not going to answer that question. I'm just raising it now. We'll get to it when we get to it. But he's, you notice that he's gone now from going up secretly, from saying he's not going to the feast, to going up secretly, and now he goes right into the temple and starts to teach. The Jews were astonished, saying, and here's another response from people, how is it that this man became learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Change of subject. Verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus knew it. it says this in the temple to the Jews. Look at their response. The crowd answered, You have a demon. In other words, you're demon-possessed. You're insane. You have a demon who seeks to kill you. They denied it. Which is what you would expect them to do, right? Who's seeking to kill you? I'm not trying to kill you. Are you trying to kill him? We're not trying to kill you. Deny it. Cover it up. They don't want their intentions to be made known to the public, but you're going to see in a moment the public already knows about it. Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? What's he referring to again? All the way back in chapter 5, right? The healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. He knows why it is that they're trying to kill him. Their intention to kill him was hatched back in chapter 5, and now it has come full circle. It's come to fruition, as it were, and he knows exactly why they're trying to kill him, and he's arguing from the less to the greater. If you circumcise a boy on the eighth day, and it happens to be the Sabbath, you circumcise the boy so that the law of Moses will not be broken. Now, if you can circumcise people on the Sabbath, why can't I heal an entire man on the Sabbath? That's a great argument. That's hard to argue against that. But he knows exactly why it is that they're trying to kill him, And he's referring back to the healing in chapter 5. Look at verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? The people understood. They knew why the religious leaders were seeking him. Is this not the one they're seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but wherever the Christ came from, no one knows where he is from. Notice again the response of the people, on the lips of the people. What was their objection here in these verses to Jesus' messianic claims? They're saying we expect, we know that we're, we know where Jesus comes from. Remember that was back in chapter 6, right? How is it you say you've come down from heaven when we know your mom and your dad? We know your brothers, we know your sisters, we know the people that you stay, we know where you're from, you're from Nazareth, we know where you grew up, we know all about you. But when the Messiah comes, we're not going to know where he comes from. He's going he's to have a mysterious origin, and nobody's going to be able to pin him down. That was their, their messianic expectation. But we know where you have come from, therefore he can't be the Messiah. That's what some people were saying. Verse 28, Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no one laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Again, what are they trying to do? Seize him. But no one laid their hand on him because his hour had not yet come. His time for his death was not yet. So as much as they were trying to seize him, they couldn't. They couldn't get a hold of him. 
Maybe a supernatural thing going on. Maybe a lack of opportunity. Maybe a lack of public support. For whatever reason, they are unable to, to put into motion their plans to seize him and kill him. Verse 31, But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Notice again the response of the crowd and the people. When the real Messiah comes, is he going to do more signs than this man has done? He has healed. He has healed the sick. He has raised the dead. He has done all of these things. He's walked on water. He has healed. He has provided food for the multitudes on two different occasions. When the Messiah comes, could he possibly do more signs than this man is doing? And so the signs served as an evidence to them that, okay, we're able to give this man a hearing. He may indeed be the Messiah. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. Now, by the way, this is the crowd, the hoi polloi, you know, the unwashed masses. This is the crowd that is saying this about Jesus, not the religious leaders of the nation. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Another reference to seizing. Now we're going to call out the temple police, the temple guard. Go get him. Seize him and bring him to us. Verse 38, 33. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I'm with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You'll seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that he may not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, You'll seek me and not find me, for where I am you cannot come? Now on the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, But this he spoke of the Spirit, who, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. There's a lot of theology contained in verse 38 and 39 about the ministry and the role and the person of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to notice where we, what we've gone through so far in the Gospel of John, Jesus has gone from going to Jerusalem secretly to teaching in the temple and confronting the Jews. And now he is standing out and crying out to the whole nation, if you are thirsty, come to me. This is anything but secret. Because the timing was right. And Jesus is orchestrating all of this according to his timetable. Look at verse 40. Now some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. And notice again the response of the crowd. That's what we're getting in John 7. The people's talking about Jesus. What was everybody saying? Others were saying, this is the Christ. And still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him but no one laid hands on him. Now from verse 40 all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 40, uh, 52, the theme is division. We see division in, in two places. We see division among the people. Some are saying he's the Christ, he's the prophet, he's the Messiah. And others were saying he comes from Nazareth. We would expect the Messiah to hail from Bethlehem of all places. He was the descendant of David. He comes from the tribe of David. That's what we would expect. We expect the Messiah to come from Bethlehem. Now were they right? Where was the Messiah born? In Bethlehem. Right, but did he grow up in Bethlehem? Well, he grew up in Nazareth, in Galilee. It didn't meet their expectations. And so they said, some group said, we know where he comes from, so he can't be the Messiah, because we know that when the Messiah comes, we won't know where he comes from. 
And another group said, we expect him to be the Christ. And other people said, how could he be the Christ if he comes from Galilee and Nazareth? That doesn't make any sense. We would expect the Christ to come from Bethlehem. So John is raising here the objections that people were giving to Jesus being who he was claiming to be. And so there occurred a division in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him. Why does John mention again and again and again that people were trying to seize him? Because he wants us to catch this. This was not just sort of some random plot. The Jewish leaders were looking for the opportunity, waiting for the opportunity, and they tried on multiple occasions to get their hands on him and to shut him up by killing him. That was their intention. All the way through this gospel, the Jewish leaders have one thing on their mind. Seize him and kill him. That's what they're after. Verse 45, The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? Remember the officers earlier up in the text? They sent officers in verse 32. The Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Now the officers come back to the Pharisees empty-handed. No Jesus in tow. No Jesus in chains and ropes. Why did you not bring him? Verse 46, the officers answered, Never has a man spoke the way this man speaks. Right? We went into the temple or wherever Jesus was at, and we heard him teach, and we wanted to seize him. We know we had orders to seize him. We haven't heard anybody teach like this guy teaches. Now, whatever the motive was behind their refusing to arrest him, they walked away from that concluding, we're not going to arrest him. We've never heard anybody teach like this. We, we, This man, we do not want to be responsible for turning this man over to you. It's basically what they're saying. Never heard a man teach like this. We're not going to arrest him. So, <clears throat> foiled again, right? The Pharisees and the scribes, foiled again. We have tried everything. We even sent the temple police to get him. And, and they walk away empty-handed. Verse 47, the Pharisees then answered them. Now look at this reproof. You have not also been led astray, have you? Oh, that's a rebuke. You've not also been led astray. No one of the rulers of the Pharisees had believed in him, has he? Right? You've been deceived by this man. He is a deceiver. And like the unwashed masses, you, the temple police, are now deceived. And you ought to know better because there's not a single Pharisee among us who has believed upon him. They're just reproving them. Here you have the religious leaders of the nation. We have all come to a conclusion about this man, and you've been led astray. There's not a single one of your bosses, not a single authority in all the nation that believes what you have believed about him. Verse 49, But this crowd, that's a statement of disdain, which does not know the law is accursed. Wow, no wonder the Jews didn't want to talk about him in front of the Pharisees. Here the temple police just said, look, he's a good teacher. And what did they get? You're alone, you're deceived, you're accursed, you're nothing. I mean, what type of a reproof is that? That's why the people were fearful. Look at verse 50. Nicodemus, he who came to him before being one of them, we know Nicodemus from chapter 3, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? And they answered him, You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Now, had all of the Pharisees rejected Jesus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee, right? And what can you glean from Nicodemus' response to this whole thing? You have basically the majority of the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, who are trying to seize him, seeking opportunity, sending the temple police. They want to kill him. And Nicodemus, at least, is cool-headed enough to say, hold on a second. And what he offers is really not a defense so much of Jesus as it really is a defense of protocol. He's simply saying, our law does not condemn a man before it gives a man a chance to speak. Now, Nicodemus had heard Jesus speak. He had heard Jesus say, you must be born again. He had heard Jesus explain to him the gospel in John 3.16. Nicodemus had heard him, and Nicodemus is basically saying, you guys have made your conclusion, but you haven't heard him. 
Our law doesn't allow for that. You ought to at least give the man a hearing. So now you see that there is division even amongst the religious leaders. Nicodemus, at least, has not joined the the fever pitch hostility against Jesus. Nicodemus, at least, is willing to give him a hearing. So now you have a division amongst the leadership of the nation. And how do they respond? Look and see. No prophet has ever arisen out of Galilee. By the way, that was a lie, and it was a mistake. That was not true. There was one prophet who did come from Galilee, and it wasn't Jesus. Who knows who it was, by the way? Mike? Jonah. That's right. I told you that when I started the the book of Jonah. Did did you guys not catch that? You catch that, but you didn't remember. There was one prophet who did come from Galilee, and that was Jonah. But they're arguing, really, it's a stupid argument. Does it matter where the prophet came from? If a prophet of God came from Clark Fork, would it really matter? He's a prophet of God, right? You accept him as a prophet of God. You allow him to speak to you as a prophet of God. doesn't matter where he comes from. That's a lame argument, but it's the best they've got. It really, ration, rationality doesn't make any difference at all when you're intent on killing somebody and you've hatched a plan and this is what you want to do and you're trying to do it and you've been frustrated every time you've tried to do it. Now, we've gone all the way through John chapter 7. You say all the way except for one verse, 53. 53 really doesn't belong in chapter 7. It belongs at the beginning of chapter 8. And so we'll deal with 53 when we get to chapter 8, verse 1. Let's make four observations from John chapter 7 real quick as we close. Chapter one is chapter 7 is filled with division. It's filled with division. Jesus was a polarizing figure. And as you read through chapter 7, here's what you find. People lining up on both sides of the issue. Some people, now listen, they, chapter 5, he laid out his claims to divine sonship. Chapter 6, he laid out his demands for discipleship. Now you come to chapter 7, and people are beginning to fall on one of two sides. They have heard his case, they have seen his deeds, and some of them are saying he's the Messiah. Others are saying he's a deceiver. Some people are saying he's the Holy One of God. Other people are saying he's demon-possessed. Polar opposites. There's no middle ground. Nobody in John chapter 7 is neutral. There is no such thing as neutrality. They're lining up on both sides of the issue. They have heard of him. And now the entire nation has heard. If there was anybody in all of the regions of Judea or Jerusalem or anybody in that nation who was not familiar with this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and who had not heard his claims and heard him teach or seen a miracle, if there is anybody in the whole nation who is ignorant of who he is and who he claimed to be, we don't read of them on the pages of the Gospels. By this point in time, we are we are about seven months away from the crucifixion of Christ, and by this time, the entire nation has heard of him, and they're beginning to line up on both sides. The nation is deeply divided, the crowd is deeply divided, and the leadership of the nation is beginning to be fractured about this individual Jesus of Nazareth. That's what's going on in John chapter 7, polarizing people. And that just is even more of an incentive for the Jewish leadership to silence him. They don't want the people divided about this figure. So chapter 7 is filled with division. Second, there is a relentless attempt to kill him, which we've seen over and over again. A relentless attempt to kill him. They are seeking the opportunity to do him in. Constantly, they are seeking the opportunity to do him in. And number three, we see the sovereign timing of God in all of these events. Jesus would say in John chapter 10, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. John chapter 7 is all about their attempts to kill him, but what you see is behind the scenes, if Jesus does not want to fall into their hands, he doesn't. Because his life is in the hands of the Father, and he controls all of these events. 
He doesn't go up to Jerusalem in a certain way because it wasn't his time. It wasn't the fashion. It wasn't going to accomplish the Father's plan. Jesus is controlling all of this, the manner, the means, the way in which he would lay down his life and the timing of his death. All of it is under his sovereign control. He's not a, he's not a victim of happenstance. He's not a victim of some plot. Though the plot is there, what we're seeing in John 7, though the entire leadership of the nation was allied to destroy him, they could not until when? Until Jesus said, all right, I'm laying down my life for my sheep. Now is the time. Now is the place. It's not going to happen before Passover. No matter what they might do, he's controlling it. He is sovereignly controlling all of the events of this this whole thing for his glory and for the Father's timing. And number four, we have in John 7 a lot of space given to the objections of the people. We know where the Messiah is coming from, so he can't be it. Or we expect the Messiah to come from Bethlehem. He comes from Galilee. He can't be it. Why would the religious leaders be allied against this man, Jesus of Nazareth, if he was the Messiah? All of those are questions and objections which John raises in chapter 7, and then he answers them for us. And he is removing all of the barriers to belief. Why? So that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. That's why John is writing. And so what he does in chapter 7 is he raises all of these objections that have been raised against the person of Christ and his claims, and John answers them to remove the barriers to belief. So now the nation of Israel has, or the leadership of the nation of Israel, has a murderous intent. That's chapter 7. And actually it's chapter 8. And all of it is going to come to a head. Because John chapter 7 really sort of marks a change of tone for the rest of the gospel. And in John chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 you are going to see a relentless and intense and dramatic conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees on almost every conceivable subject. He confronts them and he does not back down and they try and kill him day after day, week after week, month after month. They want him dead, but they cannot do it. And the intensity of the conflict grows and grows and grows continually, continually all the way up until Jesus is betrayed into their hands. See, the religious leaders need somebody on the inside to turn him over to them because they are frustrated in all of their attempts to lay their hands on him. If only they could get somebody who is close to Jesus who would be willing to betray him to them. Do they have such a man? They found such a man, right? That's the end of John chapter 6. Isn't it marvelous how John tells this story? Isn't it marvelous? John tells at the end of chapter 6, there was a traitor. The beginning of chapter 7, they were seeking to kill him. Now, even if you don't know the end of the story, you get a sneaking suspicion that these two facts are going to come together at some point to the end of this gospel, right? John chapter 7 is a relentless attempt to seize him. They're frustrated. They can't. And so that launches about five to seven months of strife and conflict and confrontation and arguing between Jesus and the religious leaders of the nation until they finally find their man. They finally found the guy who was willing to betray him into their hands, and then they will kill him. And they think they've won the victory, but they haven't, and they can't, because it's all under his sovereign timing. Well, that's John chapter 7. It's the whole thing, and you know how this works. Next week, we start over John chapter 7. And we go through it at a much more relaxed pace. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that your word is just full of treasures and gems and delightful truths. What a sovereign and good and gracious God you are. You have written down so much for us to enjoy and to learn from. We thank you for the Savior. 
that his life was laid down on our behalf by his own sovereign purposes and according to his own sovereign intentions and timing. We thank you, Father, that our lives as well rest within your hands and that nothing can attack us or come to take us or kill us before our time. You are sovereign in all of these things. We thank you for a gracious Savior who confronted and stood for truth even in the face of relentless hostility. We thank you that his death atoned for our sin. That is such a marvelous truth. We rejoice in that. We thank you for such a precious Savior and such a gracious salvation. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.